Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. High Strange is released weekly, every Thursday, brought to you absolutely free. But if you want to binge the whole season, it's available right now on Apple Podcasts for all Tenderfoot Plus subscribers. You'll also get exclusive bonus episodes throughout the season. For more information, check out the show notes. Enjoy the episode. There's some type of strange flashing red light ahead. I saw a yellow tinge in it too. Weird. It, it, it appears to be maybe moving a little bit this way. It's, it's brighter than it has been. Yellow. It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. It goes back out into the farmer's field directly overhead at very high speed. At least 15 people in the weapon storage area saw the objects in the sky. Two more lights to the front, one light to the left. Take the flashlights off. Here's something very, very strange. It's, it's better than it has been. I said, let's try and approach it. We move up to the edge of the forest, and when we tried to get close, it went back out into the field. It knew we were trying to get close. He's coming toward us now. Sparks are coming off it. So bright, it was like looking at the sun. It appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is beyond anything that we're familiar with. Welcome to High Strange. The year was 1980, Suffolk, England. Tensions between Russia and the U.S. were high. There is imminent danger of some kind of Soviet military action. There were two bases in eastern England ran by the U.S. Air Force. This invasion is an extremely serious threat to peace. They housed the most advanced weapons in the world there, ready for deployment at any second. Right around Christmas time that year, the forest behind this U.S. military base would become the location of Britain's very own Roswell event, known as the Rendlesham Forest Incident. Charles Holt, a military commander on the base, headed into the forest to investigate rumors of lights in the sky when he experienced an encounter of his own. This was the third night in a row that separate military officers claimed to have experienced something unexplainable in the forest. I reached out to one of the witnesses from the first night, his experience is arguably even more bizarre than Holt's. Forty years later, gathering these different accounts, I'm hoping to try and piece together what really happened here. I'm going to toss this guy out here real quick, if that's okay. Okay. Better? Yeah, that's perfect. Good for you? Yep. <clears throat> this is Jim Penniston. So how many of you guys believe in UFOs? At this point, I'm convinced that UFOs are not a matter of believing, but rather the question is, what are they? There are outlier cases like this one that still puzzle our government today. The real question we're asking ourselves is do you believe these are extraterrestrial? Or are they some other natural phenomenon we don't fully understand yet? Or are these guys simply mistaking what they saw, embellishing their stories, or just flat out making them all up? That's the real question here. 
You've told this story a thousand times. I say over a thousand times, right? We're fascinated by the story, and I don't have a story though. I, I don't have a story. The story sounds like something you read when you're in grade school. So what is it though? This is an investigation by the United States Air Force on December 26, 1980. This is going to be a rough night sleeping tonight. What? Well, we're ta I'm talking about These are triggers. Everything here is a trigger. There's just nothing, there's no way around it. What I was seeing was stuff I had never encountered in my life or since then. And the trauma of dealing with it. I've always been able to tell you everything it wasn't. But there is a problem when it comes down to what was it. I, I don't know what it was. Jim's story begins on December 26, 1980, shortly after midnight. I was a fifth generation military. At that time, I was in charge of base security for Woodbridge. Our job was to protect aircraft, weapons, plus the personnel on the base. The night started pretty much as usual. I had done my guard mount, which is a briefing that you give your 15 guys that are going to be working with you, putting my stuff down and grabbing a cup of coffee. Sergeant McCulley says, did you hear that call on the radio? I said, no, I missed it. Central Security Control, our control center, is trying to get a hold of you. We had a direct line, talked to Sergeant Coffey, he was a senior controller. I said, well, what's going on? He says, well, they'll brief you when you get out there. So he wouldn't tell you on the phone? He wouldn't tell me on the phone, which was odd. I'm being dispatched for a situation. What it is, I don't know. He wouldn't tell me. I arrive at the East Gate. I contact a senior law enforcement patrolman, Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens. I said, what's going on, bud? He just sort of points over, maybe 300 yards over to Reynoldsville Forest, adjacent to the gate. I could see lighting above the forest and in the forest. I turned around to him and said, well, what is it? He says, I don't know. Inside the forest, you could see orange light, you could see a red light, and you could see flickering like that. It would appear to be a fire, like something's burning. But the strange part of that, over the top of the canopy of the forest, there was a bubble of light over the top of it. What I'd seen out there didn't make sense to me at all. Whatever was there had to be really lit up. So my question to Bud was, did you hear a crash? And he goes, oh no, they landed. There's no way a helicopter or a plane could ever land in that forest. The trees in Reynoldsham Forest at the time were used as a crop. Hundreds of trees planted about five feet apart from each other, which would make it nearly impossible for conventional aircraft to land there. He went back to the East Gate and called in to report what he was seeing in the forest. Reach Central Security Control. It's now a security problem. Five guys pick up. We got five guys online. I says, well, I think there's a possible aircraft crash in the forest. They lost contact with a unidentified bogey on radar. They know where it came from. It came from out east. And all this stuff is happening mega fast. We were given permission to go off base. 
we had a crash kit. I pulled out the camera. Security control was starting to break up, and I couldn't really understand what they were saying. On base, they used repeating systems for their radios, which allowed their walkies to cover a much longer distance. Basically, there's never a dead spot. But for the first time in his career on that base, Jim was having trouble reaching the command post on his radio. Even though I wasn't hearing nothing on the radio, I'm talking. I'll get to the edge of the tree line. What was coming out of the forest was a white light. It was so intense that you couldn't really see anything inside the center of that light. Started taking pictures. I could feel static electricity on my face and skin. At first I thought it was maybe adrenaline, but it continued. My movements felt labored, like walking waist deep in a pool of water. I'm starting to wonder now, is this a ruse? Is this something out here to distract us? I started to get worried. As I got to the edge of the forest, I implemented a helping hand situation on the radio. It's real, and I'm unarmed. I used all the film up the camera, started going up this final burn. This bright white light just exploded. I, I hit the ground. I was getting very scared, very concerned for my own well-being. I know that what I'm seeing is nothing I trained for. I personally thought this is an unsurvivable situation. Everything out there is something I haven't seen before. I get up off the ground. The white light started to dissipate. And when it did, I could see nothing but this black aircraft. This black triangular craft inside this white light. Had you ever seen anything like that before? Craft like that didn't exist. He pulled out his pen and notebook and started documenting as many details as he could about what he was seeing. The craft itself was warm to the touch. He described it feeling very smooth, like black glass. When I looked underneath it, I could see white beams of light. There's three of them coming out from underneath the craft. I wonder if that's stable. I wonder if it's secure. So I tried to move it, and I pushed on it. So you literally tried to move it? Literally tried to give it a shove to see if it would move. This didn't move at all, it was solid. Fixed to the ground somehow with this technology. How can this be? I started to look for things that my aircraft needs to fly. Exhausts and intakes and things like that. It was void of all those things. There was no openings, there was no crew compartment. I had nothing. Basically, it was a flying brick. This thing couldn't fly. You need all those things for an aircraft to fly. I go ahead and record all that stuff down in my, in my book. The craft itself was warm to touch, smooth, glass-like metal. I'm still doing my security checks on the radio, but I'm getting nothing back. During my interaction with the craft, the air felt electric. I don't know how to explain that. 
boy, the hair was lifting in the back of the neck and arms and face. Come back around and I could see writing, writing on the side of the craft. That's a good thing I'm thinking. I'm hoping this says NASA or <laughs> something. As I got closer, it was a writing like we had. It was like glyphs, pictorial glyphs, which put the emotion back into a panic. What did it look like, the writing? There's five symbols. They were different shapes. The one that stood out the most was the one that was above those five. There was another one which was larger and it had a circular uh, circle around it. And it was a triangle with this huge circle around it. The size of a big dinner plate, the circle. I put my hand on a circular triangle that was above the other glyphs. All of a sudden I have a blinding pure white light I cannot see nothing else. It eliminated all my vision. It's hard to see things that don't make no sense at all. More things that don't make no sense, uh, like ones and zeros and things like that. It terrified me. I gained my wits back, lift my hand back off, and it stops. Was it in your head or physically there? I was trying to determine whether or not it was physically there or in my head, okay? When I took my hand off that symbol, I had my night vision, which is impossible. I had perfect night vision once I took my hand off the craft. After that happened with the light, I was never going to touch that craft again. All of a sudden, I started to see what I perceive as activity. All of a sudden, the color light that had dissipated inside the fabric of the craft started to come back and started moving around in the craft. So I backed away for about 10 feet. I got on the ground, tried to dig a hole. I was thinking that I had activated something when I touched it. I thought it was going to explode. The craft started powering up. Moved back through the trees. It had no air displacement at all. There's absolutely no sound. All aircraft make noise. That's a, that's a fact. All of them need flaps. All of them need uh, either a propeller or intakes or exhaust or they just can't fly. A few seconds later, it just took off. It was gone in a blink of an eye. After the craft departure, all of a sudden, I could start hearing things. Immediately after it went out of sight, I could start hearing wind. I had full radio contact. Jim Penniston was the head of security at the time, not just some on-duty guard the head of security on a U.S. military base that held nuclear bombs, ready to drop on Russia at any given moment. He spent his career in the Air Force and specialized in recognizing aircraft. 
Multiple witnesses saw the same things over the course of three days on the base. After the incident, Jim typed a report recounting his experience, submitting it to the higher-ups. He took notes in his notepad and drew several sketches of what the craft looked like. I got to see these for myself, and I'll post them on the High Strange Instagram and TikTok. Just go to at High Strange. I'm no expert on anything aircraft-related, but even to the layperson, Jim's sketches of the aircraft looked nothing like the U.S. Air Force has, then or now. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. After I had my encounter in the forest, I went back and talked to all the participants that were involved the first night. Here's Charles Holt again, the man who recorded the third night of the incident on his tape recorder. Penniston Burroughs, Cabana Sack. They told me a cleaned up version of what happened. They were told what to tell me. In fact, Cabana Sack brought me a typed statement. He didn't type it. He couldn't type. Words that he would not have used. Holt seems to think, or is at least hinting at the idea, that the reports submitted by his buddy were merely a cover story. Basically said we saw the lighthouse, I think. The British tabloid press had a field day with reports of the incident, with stories of flying saucers, 
mysterious lights, and even aliens. The Times of London, however, dismissed the incident and poked fun at the other newspapers. It quoted this man, Vince Thurkettle, a forester who works near the alleged landing site. Thurkettle told CNN that the UFO was merely a beam of light from the nearby Orford Lighthouse. But if you didn't know it was a lighthouse, if you thought it was something small, maybe two, three meters across, pulsing white in the forest, yes, it looks as if it's within the trees, and it does appear to light up the trees as well. When your senses are heightened, adrenaline pumping, and you're out in the woods at night looking for something weird, common sense says there's a good chance you might find it. I don't think we're ever going to get very far with the Rendlesham Forest incident. This is Mick West again, an investigative UFO skeptic. I don't know if there's ever going to be a determination of exactly what happened there. I think there are plausible explanations for certain aspects of it. There was a lighthouse. That's crazy. It wasn't the lighthouse. I'm very familiar with the lighthouse. And the lighthouse is at Orford Ness. Orford Ness is a little small fishing village on the coast, out on the island. Two little pubs out there have very good food and reasonable prices. I have pictures of me standing here. The lighthouse is over there and the object was out here. How could the lighthouse reflect off the windows of the farmhouse when the lighthouse is two or three miles out that way? The lighthouse theory quickly became the easiest and most rational explanation. But why would all these highly trained men interpret a lighthouse as some strange foreign object three days in a row. I mean, what's the point? The lighthouse was always there anyway. A little strange to suddenly take note of it and make a huge deal out of it all. The game warden, who was also familiar with the forest, dismissed the lighthouse theory outright. At the moment, we're standing on the Orford Quay, and quite clearly, you can see the lighthouse over there flashing. The light from the UFO was totally nothing like the light from the lighthouse. We know that people make mistakes. We know that people, even with the best of intentions and with the best of observational abilities, can sometimes perceive things to be other than the way they actually are. There are classic cases like the Cottingley Fairies where these two girls took photographs of fairies and they managed to convince a whole bunch of people that these were genuine photos of fairies, including Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a big investigator of such things at the time. They stuck to their story for decades. People, once they buy into a certain explanation, it's kind of difficult for them to admit that they, they made stuff up. Once they've told the same story over and over again, it almost becomes like a memory. They're not really lying as such. They're simply just telling the same story, which happens to be false. How could so many credible people from the military come up with the exact same lie? The same exact misinterpretation of something so completely normal? What are the odds they were all just mistaken or hallucinating? If their job is to guard and protect a military base, and they're dreaming up fantastical stories of foreign lights in the sky that didn't actually exist, then that would be pretty concerning on its own, wouldn't it? I met the lighthouse keeper, Keith Simmons. I met him and talked with him. The lighthouse has three lenses. Red and green shine out to sea and white to land. 
He said, if you saw a red light, you couldn't have seen the lighthouse. You had to be out to sea to see the red light. So people say, yeah, that red light you saw was the lighthouse. There's no way. It's not the lighthouse. The lighthouse is in a different location, 25 or 30 degrees away. There's agencies that have a whole lot more information than what they're reviewing. The following week from the incident, an unmarked plane came. Normally when planes, even the U-2s and SR-71s, which occasionally dropped them when they had a problem, we provided security for. This plane provided their own security and had their own people in uniform, which were not Air Force uniforms. Unmarked planes are not unheard of. There's a company known as Janet Airlines that shuttles employees from the Las Vegas airport to Area 51. You'd at least think that if unmarked planes full of unknown uniformed employees were landing on the base to collect information, they, whoever they are, seem to find this incident just a little bit interesting. Seems like a lot of extra unnecessary work for a lighthouse. It was obvious nobody else was going to investigate. Nobody else was going to do anything, even though they did do things in the background, behind the scenes, so to speak. I didn't know anybody else was in the background playing games. I didn't know any of this. I wasn't told to be quiet. It was sort of inferred that I should be quiet, and I already knew that. But I still got the three and four star endorsements on my report cards and still got promoted because they knew it was credible. When it comes to Charles Holt, I'll be honest, it's hard not to believe him. I get disappointed with all the disinformation that's out there, but I can't do anything about it except just tell the truth. He doesn't claim to know what he saw that night, but that it was certainly something they were beyond unfamiliar with. I have not ever said I saw a little green man. I never saw any entity that I could identify. I know what I saw, but I don't know what it was. I'd sure like to know. It's obviously whatever we're seeing in the sky has the ability to do phenomenal things change shape, change size, change color, go at phenomenal speed, do things that we just can't even imagine. He wrote down in his own memo that he and several other military personnel saw multiple objects in the sky. A, quote, red-like sun object that pulsed and shed into particles before splitting into five separate white lights and then disappearing in the sky. It's hard to imagine someone of sound mind running around with a cassette recorder chasing a stationary lighthouse all night. The tape itself feels genuine. It sounds like they really don't know what's going on. I wish I knew more, but I don't. I am firmly convinced that we're not alone, I can tell you that. But I don't know what we're faced with. Charles Holt went on to investigate the supposed landing site of the unknown aircraft, and he found indentations in the frozen ground. So something, whatever it was, had to have physically been there or someone went out of their way to make it look like there was. That feels like we're entering conspiracy land a little bit. Holt and his crew members also took Geiger counter readings. They found the radiation on the indentations in the ground were significantly higher than the background. And while they were examining the site, they were interrupted by their own first-hand UFO encounter. And each time they made an attempt to get closer to it, the object moved further away from them. Never once have I seen a lighthouse move. So what else could these things be exactly? Were they truly under intelligent control? Are they extraterrestrials? Aliens? Spirits? AI from the future? I could go on and on. Or is it none of those things at all? Something simpler and much more rational, but easily misinterpreted as something strange. 
however you feel about it, a case like the Rendlesham Forest incident is a hard one to just blindly dismiss as nothing at all. Let's take a step back. Forget the X-Files. Forget popular culture and all the alien visitation stories. Here's Politico journalist Brian Bender. Take this at face value. Sightings reported by credible people over sensitive facilities, and we don't know what they are. Just an air safety hazard. The military should probably try to find out what those things are. If for nothing else, to protect its own personnel. Our job is to protect our troops. If our troops are seeing things that they think are potentially dangerous or is upsetting to them, it's our job to do whatever we can do to figure out what that is. Let's get scientists together and deal with what could potentially be a safety hazard. If we really want to maximize our resources, let's get the government to be more transparent, share more of what it might have, and its ability to gather more data. You know, maybe not publicize all of that, but what if you shared that data with some scientists? If what we get out of this is a society where we pride ourselves on the search for knowledge, this is a topic that fits squarely into that. A whole new generation of people can put their minds to this. See if they can find more answers than their fathers or grandfathers or great-grandfathers could. That would be a real victory. We're at a time in human history where technology is advancing, assuming we can harness the technologies and they don't kill us first. I think it'd be a victory if there was a real career path. Approach UAPs as a discipline and be successful. That's the way to get down the road of knowledge. In 1950, an article was published in True Magazine titled, The Flying Saucers Are Real. It was written by former pilot and retired Marine Major Donald Kehoe. Donald Kehoe is likely the very first citizen researcher of UFOs. Unlike most of his peers at the time, he didn't rely on the government to provide him all the answers, but instead embarked on his very own investigation. At first, Kehoe was admittedly very skeptical that any of these reported sightings were something extraordinary. But after speaking to countless witnesses and numerous high-ranking military officials, he became convinced that some of these UFO sightings were of unearthly origin. Kehoe would go on to sell millions of books about the UFO mystery, and his diligent approach to the subject helped create a much more pragmatic conversation that still exists to this day. The road to knowledge is a long one, filled with roadblocks and potholes, but if we stopped looking to the military to provide us all the answers, and instead turned to independent scientists from around the world who can collect all their own data, we might have a much better shot at the truth. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? 
Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast when we say the size of the universe that's the size of the region that we can see the universe is expanding so if we go back in time it was denser back in time eventually you get infinite density that is the big bang when the density was infinite so that's the beginning of time 13.8 billion years this is avi loeb professor of science at harvard university Within that volume that we can see, which is basically the distance that light could have traveled in 13.8 billion years, there are about a trillion galaxies like the Milky Way. Within the Milky Way galaxy, there are tens of billions of stars. You have more habitable planets like the Earth than there are grains of sand on all beaches on Earth. 10 to the power 21 just a huge number. Well, that's a brain buster for you. The chance of us being special and unique is extremely small. We know that most of the stars formed 10 billion years before the present time, and the sun only 4.6 billion years ago. Most stars like the sun formed billions of years before the sun. Most planets that are habitable would be orbiting stars that are billions of years older than ours. Of these tens of billions of stars, 
Many of them have what we call Goldilocks zones, a fancy term for the areas that contain habitable planets like Earth. As of today, we've found 59 of the estimated 11 billion planets that could be inside these Goldilocks zones. If the technological clock started ticking around the same time as here, then the civilizations predated us. I think that it's very likely there could be probes visiting us. They had plenty of time to send probes that would fill up the Milky Way galaxy. Most likely, there was a scientist smarter than Albert Einstein on another planet who existed a billion years ago. They could have launched probes that arrived to us by now, and that's what we are trying to find out. Let's find the smartest kid in our interstellar class of intelligent civilizations. We can learn from that kid. What Sherlock Holmes would say is never eliminate any suspect, any possibility. Put all of them on the table, and if you eliminate them one by one, whatever remains must be the truth. At the same time, you have those scientists that don't want to touch it, ridicule it, which is also wrong. The correct thing to do is to collect enough evidence such that we will be convinced. The Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii was constructed to find near-Earth objects. Since 2008, the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii has been using astronomical cameras and telescopes to track moving objects in the sky. Near-Earth objects, the kind that Hollywood loves to make movies with Bruce Willis about. Big asteroids that could potentially wipe out the planet. Well, I'm glad someone's doing this. I mean, remember what happened to all those dinosaurs? The whole purpose of it was to find 90% of all the objects bigger than 140 meters, the size of a football field. On October 19th, 2017, the telescope spotted an object roughly 21 million miles away. Here was an object that passed close to Earth within a sixth of the Earth-Sun separation and was about the size of a football field. The data they were receiving started splitting the science community. All of its characteristics were different. It didn't seem to look or behave like a typical space rock. It's believed to be somewhere between 300 and 3,000 feet long. And Avi Loeb became increasingly convinced that the object was of interstellar origin. It was given the name Amuamua, and it's likely the first object we've ever seen from outside our own solar system. Because of its unusually high speed and trajectory, scientists became convinced that it came from somewhere else, somewhere far, far away. But where exactly? The more data they collected, the more signs pointed to the possibility that this wasn't a rock at all. And maybe it was actually a piece of machinery. They flagged it and then they measured its speed and they realized, oh, it's moving too fast to be bound to the sun. It's actually interstellar. The more we found about it, the, the more unusual it looked. And I said, well, maybe it's artificial. They said, no, it must be natural, and then tried to explain the anomalies and always concluded that it's something that we've never seen before. According to NASA, they concluded the object has vents on its surface that emit jets of gases, giving it a non-gravitational boost in its speed. Because of how insanely far it is from Earth, all we can see with our own eyes is a little speck of light. So the shape itself was determined by its light curves on a graph. Oumuamua is said to be 10 times longer than it is wide, like a pancake. 
Astronomers have never seen an object with such extreme proportions at this rate of speed inside our solar system. My colleagues suggested that maybe Oumuamua, this first object from 2017, maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, or a dust bunny. I noticed that the object is so unusual that it couldn't be a rock or a comet. It was moving too fast to be bound to the sun, and astronomers at first thought that it's a rock that originated from another star. As we collected more data, it looked very strange because the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10 as it was tumbling every eight hours. That's very unusual. It means that it had a very extreme shape. It's either the weirdest space rock scientists have come across, possible, likely even, or it's something different, possibly even artificial in origin. And other people said, oh, well, maybe it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before. And I said, well, if that's the case, it could be also artificial origin. It was not a comet. It just shows that the game is not fair. A fair game should be to say, this object does not appear to be a comet. We didn't see any evidence for that. It could be something unusual. It could be a rock of a type we've never seen before, which some people claim that's fine. But don't call it a comet. It's at the core of the way that experts respond to unusual things. They basically want them to conform with what they knew before. There was plenty of time for probes to arrive to us. Some of them may be equipped with artificial intelligence. Some may look like space trash if they're not functional anymore. What my colleagues in the scientific community are doing is wrong. They are eliminating the artificial origin possibility just because it would have huge implications if it's right. In 1950, an Italian physicist named Enrico Fermi, the creator of the nuclear reactor, was on a lunch break with his co-workers. He was discussing the recent UFO sightings in New Mexico, and he randomly blurted out, where is everybody? This question inspired him to do the math. If aliens do exist, well, then why haven't we all seen them yet? I mean, what are they waiting for? Fermi's calculations concluded that if they were real, then we would have been visited a very long time ago and many times over since then. And out of the billions of planets potentially growing civilizations, there should have been some evidence of them by now. But where are they? Why haven't they made contact if the probability is so damn high? This concept became known as the Fermi Paradox. Today, in 2023, we need some way to prove that there is other intelligent life in the universe or that there just isn't. You could look at this two different ways. To me, the easy, more ignorant approach is the whole, well, why haven't they reached out to us yet? To me, that screams, we're so special. I'm offended. Why haven't you introduced yourselves yet? If aliens were in fact real, and could travel to Earth from places so far away that we literally can't see them with our most advanced telescopes, then that would clearly mean they are incredibly more advanced than us. In this case, we're like the cavemen in the universe in terms of interstellar travel. Earth is like a little anthill in the forest. How often do you sit down next to an anthill in the middle of the woods and introduce yourself to them? Unless you're high on shrooms. And unless you're an asshole, you're not going to step on the anthill and destroy it either it's best just to leave them be. They're doing their own thing out there, with their own colony, their own system. 
Now, if the ants started talking to us, well, that might change things a bit. And I would definitely need the number for your shrooms guy. So if extraterrestrials haven't gone out of their way to contact us, maybe we should try contacting them. Both the Voyager 1 and 2 space probes created by NASA carried a type of time capsule on board for this very same reason. In the event that some other civilization out there found the space probe, inside it would be our own little message in a bottle. It contains a gold-plated copper 12-inch record with instructions on how to play it written in binary code. We probably should have waited for the iPod to come out, but hindsight's always 2020. The concept of making contact with extraterrestrials is something that's inspired the greatest science fiction movies of our time. And while it's held its place in popular culture, it's also been the focus of many great scientists of our time. And not just the science community, but civilians too. One man named John Shepard spent his whole life building a machine to make contact with ETs, and he believes it actually happened. The heart of Project Strat is the broadcast operation. There are 60,000 volts running through his basement, powering a signal that's beamed straight out into space. The possibility that something out there might hear and perhaps respond keeps John going. John lives in a quaint little town in northern Michigan. And for over 30 years, he has literally been trying to contact aliens. Sending out a signal. Throwing out a lure. Trying to get some more information by luring them in close enough to get accurate electronic measurements. Some hard data, something on instruments. He built a radio transmitter so enormous that it took up two floors of his house with generators the size of cars, an unbelievably powerful homemade machine you'd only expect to find at NASA. After decades of beaming signals into space, collecting data, and tweaking his instruments, one night, he experienced something that remains hard to rationally explain to this day. After years of sending his own signals into space, he was suddenly getting something back. Contacted our local sheriff's department. They sent out a deputy. I showed him on the oscilloscope screen what was coming on. A frequency on the machine that was far more than just some strange anomaly. Something was out there intentionally causing it. There shouldn't be that other frequency in there. That's not part of it. Something caused that amount of energy. I think something was uh, attracted. High Strange is an eight-part series released weekly for free every Thursday. But if you'd like to binge the whole series right now, you can. Subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the episodes right now. Follow the show on TikTok and Instagram at High Strange. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Payne Lindsay. If you have your own UFO story, email us at tips at highstrange.com. 
High Strange is a production by Tenderfoot TV in association with Cadence 13. Created, hosted, and edited by myself, Payne Lindsay. Executive producers are myself and Donald Albright. Editing by Mike Rooney, Cooper Skinner, and myself. Original score by Makeup and Vanity Set. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional production by Mike Rooney, Dylan Harrington, Eric Quintana, Sean Nerney, Meredith Stedman, and Sydney Evans. Our cover art is by Polygon. This episode features the song Space Cadet by Metro Boomin featuring Gunna, written by Wesley Tyre Glass, Sergio Kitchens, Leland Tyler Wayne, Alan Ritter, and Jacques Webster, performed by Metro Boomin featuring Gunna, courtesy of Republic Records, under license from Universal Music Enterprises for Metro Boomin and 300 Entertainment for Gunna. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and the whole team at UTA, the Nord Group, Station 16, Beck Media and Marketing, as well as Chris Corcoran and the team at Cadence 13. Check out the show's website at highstrange.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please help us out by rating and reviewing the podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. 